Um, I, I've never been to New York City, um, but I'm told, um, well, at least according to the New York Times, um, last October the New York Times um, stated the obvious, it said, this was its own journalist's words, to state the obvious, you can't see New York City in 36 hours. You could easily fill a couple of days eating your way down one street in Jackson Heights or spend an entire weekend uncovering corners of Central Park. Now, the point is, it is just too big and there is too much to deal with um, in such a short space of time. Uh, this morning, we are looking ahead to our week of prayer and the subject that we're going to be thinking about is the subject of prayer. A prayer is just one word we use to kind of describe every, every kind of communication we have with God. We, we just put it all under this one bracket, don't we? Prayer. Uh, but prayer is a, is a vast country, um, much more than New York City. Uh, there is too much to see in this subject of prayer, too much to explore um, in a lifetime, let alone in these moments we have together today. Prayer is a vast country. There are there are different terrains and different cultures and different languages. Um, and so I want us really to focus our exploration of prayer um, down a little bit. Um, in the vast country of prayer, I want us, as it were, to visit one city. Uh, and, and the city I want us to visit is called Askin. I want us to think about prayer as asking God to do things. And, and even, no, like New York City. Um, this city of asking is too big for just a short visit. So, so we've got to recognise lots will be unsaid this morning. But I want us to think about asking God for things in prayer. And, and as, we, uh, as we come to that, how do you feel about it? How, how do you feel about asking God to do things? Now, let, let me put it a bit like this. Um, do you kind of instinctively feel... That prayer is like being a passenger in a car or being in the driving seat. Now that, that is, as a passenger, it doesn't really matter what you say or you do. You are not in control. But as the driver, then the direction of the journey is decided by which way you turn the wheel. Now in prayer, do you feel that, that the requests you make to God, the thing you ask God about, do you feel that it matters? If you're not too sure how to answer that, then maybe one simple way to find an answer is just to think, how much do we invest in asking God to do things? You see, if we feel that we are passengers and that our asking doesn't really matter, we're probably not going to make that much of a priority. However, if we feel that we're in the driving seat and that our asking makes a difference to what God will do, then I imagine those kinds of prayers will be something we take very seriously and we give ourselves to very often. How do you feel about asking God for things in prayer? Well, as I said, our subject is prayer. Our focus is narrow, asking God to do things. And we're going to look at Psalm 2. And, and I think as we look at Psalm 2, what we will see is this. We will see here that there is a real sense... A real sense that God has put the future, the flourishing, the destination of the whole world under the control of prayer. I think that's a pretty bold statement to make. So let's see if the scriptures justify making it. Now let's look at Psalm 2. It'll help you if you've got it open in front of you as we go through here. This psalm is 
Well, it's about a king. It's about God's king. That's the subject of the psalm. It's the, the one who is the Messiah, who is God's son, who comes and takes his place on the mountain of God, and God speaks to him. And if you look at verse 8, in verse 8, God says to his son king, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You see there in verse 8, the heart of the psalm is a prayer request. God the Father tells God the Son to pray. I want us to think about that. Why is that the case? Why is the Son, the Messiah King, told to pray? Well, let's get it in its context, shall we? What's going on in Psalm 2? Oh, we can divide it up into three sections broadly. In the first three verses, we have a kingdom refused. The first three verses really are a question, and it's a question of incredulity. Um, it's, it's like watching somebody fill up their car fuel tank with lemonade, and you're watching them do it, and you're going, why are they doing that? It doesn't make any sense. It's madness, isn't it? That's, that's the question in verses 1 to 3. Why are they doing that? The, the questioner watches the activity of the nations, the whole world, the peoples, the kings, the, the rulers, and, and looks out at what's happening and sees there is a tumult in the world, like an, like an ocean with waves that are rising and falling and crashing together. And, and in all of the tumult of the nations, there is a common theme. There's one thing that unites it all. You look in verse 2, it's what the thing that unites the world is a rejection of the Lord and his anointed, that is his Messiah. Why don't they want God? Why don't they want the Lord? Well, verse 3, this is what they're saying. Is their anthem... Their anthem is, let us break their chains. They think the rule of God is an oppressive thing, and they want to break free. What we have here is that rebellion that first broke out in the Garden of Eden. Way back when Adam and Eve refused the kingdom rule of God. Right back in the beginning, they, they turned away from God because they wanted to make the rules for themselves. They didn't want to do what God said, and they were believing a lie that the snake had told them. The lie that God's word was for their harm and not for their good, so they refused the kingdom. Now, Psalm 2 sees that same refusal blown up to the scale of nations. That there are whole peoples who don't want to follow what God says. These, these nations who are still believing that lie, that ancient lie... That God's word is for their harm and not for their good. So they join together and they say, let's get rid of God and his Messiah. We don't want anything to do with them. Well, the refusal of the kingdom grew and it reached its climax when crowds gathered together in Jerusalem. And they, they continued this anthem theme of, of Psalm 2 when they shouted out about the Lord's Messiah, crucify him. And Acts chapter 4 in the New Testament quotes from this psalm, and it, it's a prayer. And in, in, in Acts 4, after quoting the psalm, it says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now verses 1, 1 to 3 describe the way that the world and all the world has turned from God and rejects his ways. And, and there's a sense in which in which every, every nation of the world, over all the generations, we, we all join our voices in one and we cry for the murder of the Messiah. And the question is, why? Why are you doing that? Now, how, how do you think 
your plan to get rid of God can possibly work. The kingdom is refused in the first three verses. Then in verses 4 to 9, we have the kingdom come. We move between verse 3 and 4 to a rebellion on earth into the throne of heaven. The throne room of heaven. And there we find the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Laughs. God isn't concerned at all. In, in the sense that God isn't insecure about all of this raging on earth. The nations can rage and they can rise and the world can join together and try to get rid of God. But it's like an, it's like an ant trying to stop the progress of a tank. God laughs. And, and there is a sublime comfort in that laughing for those who belong to God. You see, you see when we look at verses 1 to 3 and we find that we are caught up in the raging of the nations. And we find that we get blown into dizzying panic by the godlessness of the world. Now in those times when everything is falling around us and there is fighting and raging and distress everywhere, we can turn our eyes up to the one who is enthroned in heaven. Now if there is a battle, the battle belongs to him. If there's a victory, his is the victory. He cannot be moved. Now, the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if the captain is assured of victory, it behooves the common soldier to be bravely hopeful. Because all events are in his hands, his hands who can dash whole worlds to dust or create them when it pleases him. He laughs because there is nothing that can stand against him. And so for us, when we are weary of the struggle, we can look up. The throne of heaven is occupied and it will never fall. But the one enthroned in heaven doesn't just laugh, he also speaks. He is angry at the rebels. It says he terrifies them in his wrath. And what's the terror that he brings? Well, it's his speaking, verse 6. But verse 6 is emphatically personal, saying, I, God, me, yes, God himself, responding to the rage of the nations, what he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's how God responds to the rebellion of nations. He brings in his own king. Now, the kingdom of heaven comes to earth through the reign of God's anointed king, the Messiah. It was King David who wrote this psalm. Uh, King David who received the promise from God in 2 Samuel 7 that out of David's descendants would come a great king. And, and God said about David's descendants in 2 Samuel 7, God said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's probably why David wrote this psalm. And, and so this psalm is a psalm that directs our attention a thousand years beyond its writing. A thousand years to when the, the preacher from Galilee came and said, the kingdom of heaven is here. Now Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was murdered at Calvary, the one whose corpse was laid in the tomb. And then on the third day, the stone was rolled away to reveal that the Messiah had risen. And in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13... It says that this is good news. This is the good news. That what God had promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it's written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. There it was, at the resurrection, when Jesus the Messiah was raised up to be king forever. 
At the resurrection, the Son of God by nature was given the title Son of God, the Eternal King. And he was given all the authority. The resurrected Jesus entered into heaven and the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and was given authority and glory and sovereign power and an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, the risen Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's the fulfilment of Psalm 2. The fulfilment of Psalm, of verse 8 in Psalm 2, where, where this Messiah son, this king, is given the nations as his inheritance, and the ends of the earth his possession, and his kingdom stretches over all the world. And as someone once said, there is not a square inch over which the Messiah king does not say, mine. Great authority. Now verse 9 describes the great authority given to King Jesus. Verse 9 says, you will break them. You will break the nations with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. See, King Jesus, with all of his authority, he will use his authority to protect his subjects and to de- defeat those who oppose him. Now that verse 9 in Psalm 2 is quoted on three occasions in the very last book of the Bible. Now see, verse 9 is looking forward to the end of times. It looks forward to the great final judgment. Now listen to how Revelation 19 describes King Jesus. It says, at that end time, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then it quotes Psalm 2, verse 9. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury and wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our King Jesus on the last day. And back in Psalm 2. Until that final day, verses 10 to 12 show how this authority is worked out with the kingdom coming. And, and as we move from verse 9 into verse 10, we, the, the, the fragrance that hits us in verse 10 is a fragrance of staggering mercy. You see, when we get to verse 10, we find that those kings and those rulers who are raging in verses 1 to 3, all of those rebels against God, hear a word of grace. Be wise. Come on, it says. Come to your senses. You can't get rid of God you can come to him so serve the Lord with fear celebrate his rule with trembling how can they come to one who is so high and so holy verse 12 says kiss his son the mighty King Jesus who is also gentle and lowly in spirit and invites all who will to come to him and find rest he is the mighty King Jesus He is king of kings and lord of lords. He will bring heaven's judgment to earth. And if we don't turn to him, verse 12 says, your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But, the last line, look at the last line of the psalm. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Because there is one place. There is, there is one place in all of existence. There is one place where rebels can find a refuge from the coming judgment. Now all those who have lived and rebelled, all of us who have refused the rule of God and we tried to work it out our own way, we lived as though God were dead and his Messiah King had no consequence to our lives. Finally, we all must meet the judgment of God, but there is a place of refuge. There is a place where blessings flow forever and ever and ever and that place, that refuge is in him. Because King Jesus is the servant king. And when he died on the cross, he, he was offering himself to take that judgment in the place of his people. That's how he becomes a refuge. <laughs> because all who trust Jesus are hidden up in Jesus. So when the storm of judgment falls, it lands on Jesus. And all who have taken refuge in him are kept safe forever and ever This is how the authority of Jesus is worked out in his kingdom coming. Judgment on those who refuse him, but blessed protection for all who take refuge in him. You see, so Psalm 2, it's, a, it's kind of a programmatic psalm. Describing, in a sense, the whole course of human history. And at the centre of the psalm is a, a prayer request. God the Father telling God the Son to pray. There in verse 8. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. Now why is that? Why is the Messiah King told to ask? Well the straightforward answer is there in verse 8 isn't it? He is to ask so that he might receive. That's what verse 8 says isn't it? Ask and I will give. And you see with that that the destiny of the whole world hangs on a prayer request. Ask, and I'll give you the nations right to the ends of the earth. The request here is, your kingdom come. The request here in verse 8 is answered finally. In Revelation 11 describes that blast of the seventh trumpet at the end of time. When the, heaven, the heavens will shout out and cry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And then when we get to Revelation 21 and we find there is a new heaven and a new earth. And the dwelling of God is with his people. Uh, God and his people always together living in a tearless joy in the bejeweled city. It's all made dependent on prayer. All of that. See there is a real sense that God has put the future of the whole world under the control of prayer. Why? <laughs> no, no, why doesn't the psalm just say, I will give? Why is it just not a promise? Why does he say, ask, and I will give? No, does, does, does kind of God the Father feel a little bit unsure about this? Does he think he might forget and he's going to need a reminder a bit later? Or he's going to be, I, I, I might be busy with other things, so you're going to have to remind me a bit later. And, no, I'm, I'm not that sure whether I want to do it anyway, so you're going to have to prod me. That's not what's happening, is it? Of course it's not what's happening. Now, why does he have to ask? Well, I think the answer lies when we see that verse 8 follows verse 7. Verse 7, God says to the Messiah, You are my son, today I've become your father. 
Now, at the resurrection, the eternal Son of God became the Messiah Son, the King forever. Now, we're listening here in this psalm on a conversation between a father and a son. God the Father and God the Son. The Father says to his Son, ask and I will give. Now, Jesus is to ask because he's the Father's Son. Now, prayer is something that, that, that begins in the very being of God. In that great eternal relationship, there is a father and a son. And it's a real relationship where, where, where their mutual love is completed by asking and receiving and giving and taking. And of course, there's a deep mystery when we talk about the, the tri-unity of God. But that's where prayer finds its beginning, right in the Godhead. Prayer exists because there is a father and a son in a relationship of love. And so the son asks because his father tells him to. And he loves his father and he trusts that love of his father. And the father gives because he loves his son. There is a real sense that God has put the future of the whole world under the control of prayer. And this prayer rises up. It grows out of the love of God. The mutual love of father and son. And the destiny of all creation hangs on that love. And of course Jesus asked, didn't he? As an obedient son, he did what his father told him. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, All those the father gives me come to me. Because Jesus asked and the father gives. And the Lord Jesus is receiving the inheritance of the nations. Now that's why we're here this morning, isn't it? We are sitting here because Jesus asked. He asked the Father, and the Father gave us to Jesus. And even now, Romans 8 says that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Right now, Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Right now, in this very moment, the Lord Jesus is praying, verse 8, with you in mind. He's asking the Father in that constant intercession. He's saying, give me the nations. Give me these people as my possession. May my, may my blood sacrifice continually cover all of their sins. And may the power of my life continually uphold them and sustain them. And he will pray it, and he will pray it, and he will pray it constantly. He will never stop, he will never fail to keep praying until the very end, until that last time when we will gather at his throne with those from every nation and tribe and people and language, and we will be in the new world and we will sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus asks, and the Father gives. But what about us? Now, what about our asking God for things? Now, I am, I'm sorry to admit this, but I, I once went to a ballroom dancing lesson. <laughs> I once went. Um, and I was shown all kinds of wonderful things that other people seemed very capable of doing. Um, when it came to me trying to do them, it wasn't quite the same. And we can think that here, can't we think, well, it's great that Jesus prays, isn't it? It really is great that Jesus prays. It is really, really great that the destiny of the whole world rests on Jesus' prayer. But what about our prayers? Now, we're the answer to Jesus' prayer, and that's precious, isn't it? 
That's a precious place to be. Uh, and we think, well, maybe that then lets us off the hook a little. Now, Jesus prays, so, so, so maybe we don't need to. The thing is, though, being the answer to Jesus' prayer is massive. Uh, Jesus is praying for the nations to be his inheritance, and with his supreme authority, he will protect his subjects, he will defeat his enemies. And as verse 10 to 12 say, the kingdom comes with judgment for those who refuse and blessed protection for those who take refuge in him. Refuge in him. See, that's where we are now. We belong to Jesus. If we're trusting Jesus, we will never, ever be separated from him. If we're trusting Jesus, we are connected into him forever and ever and ever. We take refuge in him. We're so closely connected, so closely connected that Revelation chapter 2 quotes verse 9 and applies it to the church. That's how close we are. In Jesus, we share everything that he is and everything that he has. And so in him, we join in his prayer. Now, why should we ask God for things? Well, the answer is the same as when we ask about Jesus, isn't it? Look at verse 8. Ask and I will give. Now there's a real sense that God has put the destiny of the world under the control of your prayers. That's what Jesus taught, isn't it? What he's saying John 15. Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. I think Psalm 2 verse 8 sits underneath that. The Father says to the Son in verse 8, ask, well now we who belong to the Son, we ask in his name, and he will give. You see, when we think of prayer like this, then, well, imagine that you're taking a journey on a ferry, a big ferry. There are hundreds of passengers on this ferry, and you, you, you walk on, you walk up the gangplank, and you, you get onto the ferry, and you're in the kind of crowd of people, and one of the crew members comes and grabs you and leads you along and brings you into a room, and it's, it's the, the bridge, it's the control room of the ship. And, and, and there you are, you're not quite sure what's happening. And the captain then takes you to one side and he points over to the wheel. And he says, have a go. There you go. This is your job. You're to be the pilot of the ship. That'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? It's terrifying. No, so much would depend on what you do. And if that was the case, you would be so concerned to give it your full attention. You wouldn't be casual about it at all. And as you did it, you would be constantly asking the captain if you're going the right way, wouldn't you? Well, asking in prayer is like that. It's not something we take lightly. You want to keep checking we're going the right way. Now, how do we put that into practice? Now, let's, let's draw it together with kind of three questions about putting it into practice. Uh, what should we ask for? How should we ask? And why should we ask? Uh, what, what should we ask for? Well, well, the prayer request is there in verse 8, isn't it? It's right there. We ask that the nations will be given as an inheritance to King Jesus. We pray your kingdom come. And we can be totally confident the Father will deliver the kingdom to Jesus' Son. Now, that's the headline request. We are sure, we can be absolutely sure that request will be answered. We can ask that that reign of Christ will be extended in full over every part of his dominion because there is not even a square inch over which the Messiah King does not say, mine. 
But we make that request in a million different ways. Millions of different ways. And we ask about the tiny corner of the cosmos where we live. <coughs> Here, in these things, may your kingdom come. About the people on the streets in which we live. May your kingdom come. May these people find refuge in you. May they come to belong to you. We ask it about the injustices and the wickedness that we see in the world. We pray, may your kingdom come. Because he will bring judgment to those who refuse him and bless protection to those who take refuge in him. Pray for the nations. I've got a link on my prayer app to something called the Joshua Project, which gives details of an unreached people group every day. On Friday, it was a people group I never heard of, the Mazhabi people in India. That there are 3.3 million people in this group. They are Punjabi speakers. You can pray. Pray that this people group will find their refuge in Jesus. That God will give the inheritance of the Mushabi people to Christ. And that around the throne of heaven we will hear their Punjabi speaking voices praising the Lamb. Now God ordains prayers like that to advance his great purposes to bring all things together under Christ. Prayers like that in the name of King Jesus, they change the world. What are we to ask for? How do we ask? Well, I, I think we need to remember that we are children coming to our great father. That's how Jesus is to pray, isn't it? How Psalm 2 shows father and son in love, asking and giving. So let's not shout our demands at our Heavenly Father, but let's ask Him like children. And, and, and a couple of things that I think help us with that is, first of all, we, let's just talk to Him about what we're asking. Let, let's explain to Him why we're asking for what we're asking and, and give Him the reasons that we have for making the requests that we make. We talk to Him, we, we read something in the Bible and we see something in the world and we, we, we talk to Him about how they might connect. I guess prayer like that involves a lot of thinking, imagining what it might mean for the kingdom to come in this very specific situation around us. And so we talk to God about what we're praying and why we're praying for what we're praying. And, and, and I think that we mentioned the Lord's Prayer earlier. The, the Lord's Prayer is a really helpful kind of anchor to us as we talk to God about our requests. The Lord's Prayer that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May the glory go to you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. That's what we want. That's what we're aiming towards. Every request we make is aiming at your glory and your kingdom and your will. And we just keep trying to ask those things in every situation. We talk to him about what we're asking. And, and secondly, as we talk, we recognize all of our weakness and limitations. And we don't really always know what is best to ask for. As we talk to God about what we're asking for, we can find ourselves saying, this is the best I can think of. That's why I'm asking for it. But if you want something different, I know that will be better. And what I really want is for you to do the best thing. And that shouldn't stop us praying. It should make us pray more. Make us pray more because we can know that if we're not asking for the right thing, we trust that God loves us too much to give us what will harm us. Now, Tim Keller said, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. So let's ask. Ask and ask and ask. Let's ask big and bold prayers. God is going to give us what is best. 
And why can we ask? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Think of the confidence that gives when we pray. When we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, who is the perfect, beloved Son, to whom the Father says, ask and I will give. Uh, On our own, we haven't got any claims to make before God. We we can't go to God and say, give me these things because of this good stuff that I've done. We we can't go to God and say, um, give me these things because I've managed to use the right words when I pray. Or or give me these things and and if you give me them, then I promise I'm going to do some good things afterwards. Let's get rid of any idea we have that we can make a claim on God, but hold tightly to the fact that Jesus Christ has every claim on God. We don't ask in our own name. Don't end a prayer and saying in in Richard's name. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? We ask in the name of Jesus. We ask because of Jesus. How do you feel about asking God to do things? There is a real sense that God has put the future and the flourishing and the destination of the whole world under the control of prayer. Under the control of your prayer. What are you going to do with that power? Let's take a moment to reflect and then we'll pray together. Our Father in heaven, whenever we think on prayer um, quickly, I think we find ourselves with the Lord Jesus' disciples asking him to teach us how to pray. Uh, We know we have a lot to learn, uh, but Lord, we pray that what we have learned, that you will help us to put into practice, and you'll make us those who pray big and bold prayers in the name of Jesus, asking confidently for his kingdom to come asking confidently for his name to be glorified, that he will get the inheritance due to him, uh, the, the reward of his great suffering, so that around his throne there may be many who cry out, Hallelujah, praise to him, the Lamb who was slain. Please will you help us to pray.